1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 11, and then uh, 17 to 20. Now I will remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, uh, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you help us um, by illuminating this text uh, for our eyes, for our spiritual eyes, for our hearts, uh, so we would receive it really from you. Um, and wherever we may be coming from, whatever questions we may be carrying with us, I pray, Lord, you would uh, address um, those things for us and and, and speak to our hearts what we, each of us, uh, need to hear. Uh, let your word have that effect on us, we pray uh, in your son's name. Amen. Uh, nothing is more important to the, the Christian faith than this single um, and, and simple truth, that Jesus Christ lives. He's alive. Uh, the, the theologian John Calvin once said that the most important article of the Christian faith is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so every evangelist and preacher have uh, this, this responsibility to be careful in improving it. And what he meant by that is um, don't, just, don't just preach it as a matter of factly, but also present a case for it uh, biblically and uh, for this particular doctrine. You don't have to do that with every doctrine, but for this, he says, you ought to because it's the most central one. Why? Uh, it says in verse 17 of our passage, right? If Christ has not been raised, Paul says, your faith is futile. It's useless. It's meaningless. Uh, if the resurrection isn't true, then, then all of this, right? all of Scripture, it's a waste of time. But on the flip side, if the resurrection is true, uh, everything Jesus ever said, Everything in the Bible that Jesus affirmed as God's word, they are true, right? If Jesus walked out of his own grave, as he said he would, then that's the only thing that matters uh, because it validates everything else. If it's not true, it falsifies everything else. It all hinges on the resurrection, and this is a very unique aspect about the Christian faith that sets it apart from every other world religion that's out there. 
the, the Christian faith is the only faith in the world that presents itself as something falsifiable. Uh, the Christian faith is the only faith that says, here's something that can be historically disproven, and if it can be disproven, the whole thing falls apart. It, it's kind of like the Death Star in, in um, Star Wars. That, that there's this exhaust port that uh, if you shoot a torpedo through it, right in the middle of it, uh, and you hit the dead center, then the whole thing blows up. Right? It causes a chain reaction, and the whole thing blows up. And Luke Skywalker right, very expertly maneuvers the torpedo using the force and Anyway, uh, Christianity has something like that. There is an exhaust port. If you hit, hit that through that channel, that center into where the Christian faith is, the whole thing falls apart. The only difference is, right, it's not secret knowledge. It's entirely public. It's public from this passage. If you hit this target, the whole thing falls apart. That's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If he did not rise from the dead, Nothing else matters. Nothing else is true. We're wasting time here. So here in, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes how Jesus really died, how he really was buried, and that he really resurrected from the dead, and he appeared to his disciples, the 12, James, the brother of Jesus, and to Paul himself. What is he doing? He's inviting the readers to corroborate their claim. Go talk to these people. Uh, he says, go talk to the 500 brothers who have seen him, most of whom are still alive. Why does he mention that? Talk to them. Get their testimonies. Uh, corroborate or discredit their claims. It's not that hard to cross-examine 500 people and find discrepancies in their testimonies if they're lying. Talk to them. It's an open invitation to investigate for both Christians and non-Christians, by the way. Uh, it's not like if you're a Christian, for you, this is something you take purely on blind faith. But if you happen to be a, a intellectual skeptic, then here's the evidence. No, he's saying, everyone, go look into this historical data. See if this thing is in, in exactly uh, what it says it is a piece of history that Jesus rose from the dead. So what we're going to do first today is look at the, the data as we're invited to do, and then we'll close with a, a bigger point, a more practical point as to what, what practical difference um, will this make. So the first point will be more of sort of a uh, what, the data, and then the second point would be more of a so what, what why should this um, matter to me? All right, so point number one, let's dive into the first point, the historical data, and see how, if any of this could be rationally uh, taken in. Uh, take a look at verses 3 and 4. Uh, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then from verse 5 and on, Paul lists the names of the people that he claims Jesus appeared to in person. Now, what's really interesting about this is um, most of what Paul mentions here, maybe except for just the fact that uh, Paul says he rose from the dead, Everything else he mentions here, virtually all scholars of antiquity, ancient historians, even in secular institutions, agree upon. Meaning, even those who reject the claim that Jesus rose from the dead agree with the surrounding historical data during the, the period of time immediately after Jesus' crucifixion. What are those facts? And I want to give you seven um, pieces of historical data and, and, and comment on them briefly. Uh, first of all, 
the historical fact of Jesus' crucifixion, and therefore his death. His crucifixion and his death are two pieces of historical data that virtually all scholars of antiquity agree upon. And by, by scholars, I mean people actually in reputable history departments in, in, in universities, not um, people on Reddit, all right? <laughs> I'm talking about people who actually write peer-reviewed um, historical articles. Josephus was a credible non-Christian historian from the first century, and he writes about Jesus. He identifies Jesus as the brother of James and a wise teacher who was, quote, beaten in his naked body with scourges and, and then crucified by Pilate, the Roman governor. That's really significant because, for one, it rules out the theory, which is out there, that says Jesus didn't really die, but he was just arrested and then tortured, uh, then released, and the disciples mistakenly thought, okay, he resurrected from the dead. Uh, nobody really takes that seriously because the historical data contradicts it. He died by crucifixion. You don't just walk away from a crucifixion. Uh, even the sources outside the Bible, like Josephus confirmed, Jesus died by crucifixion. That's fact one and two, right? Virtually nobody disputes that. And then, and then here's a third and fourth piece of the data that follow. Jesus was then buried after his death. And then therefore, uh, and then later his tomb uh, was found to be empty. He was buried after his death and later his tomb was found empty. One of the biggest claims that um, came out of the, 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 the Pharisees and the scribes after Easter Sunday, the first Easter Sunday, was that the disciples of Jesus came in the middle of the night, overpowered the Roman soldiers, stole his body and took his body away. Uh, they spread this news far and wide. Uh, but what does that prove when they propagate this idea that um, Jesus' uh, disciples came and stole, stole his body? It proves the tomb is empty. Ironically, um, as they you know, bring out this charge against the disciples that they, they stole Jesus' body, it proves that there is no body. The one thing that could have easily put an end to this whole Jesus movement, um, the, the corpse, that dead body of Jesus, it's nowhere to be found. But why is it unreasonable to posit that uh, the disciples could have stolen the body and then, and then lied about it? Well, and that leads to data number five. Uh, again, something that historians virtually all historians agree upon, that Jesus' disciples really believed that they saw the risen Christ. I'm not saying all historians believe Jesus appeared to the disciples. I'm saying historians believe that the disciples think they saw him. Right? They, they, they don't think themselves, historians, that it happened. Most of them don't. But what they do agree is they think the disciples think that they saw him. Why? Because the records are so clear. The disciples of Jesus, just days after the death of Jesus, were seen in the public square proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus, even in the face of persecution and execution. There were all kinds of uh, messianic movements and revolts against the Roman Empire during Jesus' time. But they all have one thing in common. When the leader dies, the movement dies. Everybody goes home. When your rabbi is killed, the followers go home. Uh, but not so for the, the Jesus movement. The leader dies and the movement explodes. Uh, you have to take that into account and somehow rationally explain that. This is why most historians, even if they don't themselves believe in the resurrection, believe the disciples believed. Otherwise, they could not have done the things that they have done. Proclaim the resurrection as they were tortured, burned, thrown to lions, 
crucified on the cross. See, we know people can die for a lie. People can be deceived. People can be deluded and die for a lie. But people do not die for a lie that they have made up. Uh, People would not uh, go around or go steal Jesus' body, preach about his resurrection, knowing he is a phony Messiah, to the point of dying for him. That makes no sense. And you got to have a way of historically accounting for then how the disciples really thought Jesus really was raised from the dead. Then there's this. Here's a sixth piece of historical data. Some of the disciples of Jesus, after, after the crucifixion of Jesus, were Jesus' own brothers. James, who wrote the book of James. Jude, who also wrote the books by the same name. Um, they both refer to Jesus in the opening of their letter as their Lord and God. Um, that should raise a question, right? How, how do these brothers who were known in their town to have grown up with Jesus in the same household suddenly worship him as God? For those of you who have siblings, <laughs> uh, would you ever consider the possibility of worshiping your sister or your brother as your God? I have a younger brother. His name's Isaac. Some of you actually know him. Um, and what would it take? I, I asked myself, what would it take for me to worship him? Although sometimes he behaves like I should worship him. Uh, what would it actually take for me to willingly fall on my knees and worship him? Now, I, and I thought about this. If he were to come to me and, and tell me, uh, in a few days, I'm going to die a horrible death by the authorities. And I'm going to die a very public death. I'll be buried, and after three days, I will rise again. And everything he said would happen, happens. Dies a very public death. He gets buried. After three days, he appears to me. He says, here I am. Peace be with you. That would do it for me. <laughs> I, would, I would fall on my knees and say, Sir Isaac, <laughs> uh, you are not who I thought you were. Uh, now I must devote my life, rest of my life, to relearning who you really are. And uh, here, Jesus' brothers were doing just that, falling on their knees, calling their brother their Lord and God. And that warrants an explanation. And lastly, uh, number seven, historical fact number seven, the conversion of Paul. Bart Ehrman is a a New Testament historian at UNC Chapel Hill, very reputable scholar and an outspoken uh, atheist, a very strong opponent of uh, Christianity. He acknowledges that Saul's conversion or Paul's conversion is historical and that it requires a rational, coherent explanation. Uh, Because records show Saul was a zealous Pharisee who was at the time the greatest persecutor the Christian church has ever seen. He was, he was uh, hunting down Christians. That was his full-time job. And suddenly, overnight, he becomes Christianity's greatest missionary. And arguably, it's its greatest apostle, apostle or writer. Uh, he wrote most of the, much of the New Testament. That, that warrants a rational explanation. Paul's own explanation is this. On my way to Damascus to arrest and imprison more Christians, Jesus appeared to me. The risen Christ appeared to me, and he radically changed my life. He summarizes it this way in our passage, starting from verse 8. 
Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. So we have to, because Saul is such a historically cemented figure, uh, virtually all historians, even the ones who, who are adamantly opposed to Christianity, say you have to account for Saul's conversion. What happened? What happened to this man? Um, so there's seven historical facts there, again, that even those who are opposed to Christianity would agree are historically reliable data these seven that I just mentioned. Um, here's, the, here's the point I'm making with all this. First, as Christians, uh, we have to understand what our claim is. The best explanation that takes into account all of this historical data is that Jesus really rose from the dead. And the invitation um, to give us a more coherent, more rational explanation for all of this data that invitation has been open for 2,000 years. And it has not been given to us. Not for lack of people trying. Uh, and throughout the centuries, when we make more discoveries of manuscripts and archaeology, these historical facts have been more and more cemented. But a better, more coherent explanation for this data have not appeared. Uh, for, if you're a Christian, you should hold on to that. Uh, at least that's what the Apostle Paul wants you to realize. This is a historically reliable um, fact. Um, the question that, that maybe follows from that is, well, uh, if you're maybe a, a, someone who is seeking or questioning, are you willing to be uh, intellectually honest enough to let this data lead you where they must, even if they may take you away from your prior commitments? Because that's what intellectual honesty means, right? You, um, you don't deny the data based on prior commitments. But you, but you, you follow the data where, where they lead. Um, you let the data in and rewire you. That would be intellectual honesty. We're saying the same, aren't we? We're saying we'll let all the data in. And if somehow resurrection gets disproven, we'll abandon this faith. Will you say the same? By, by letting the data in, rewire your prior commitments to where the data leads you. Let the data speak for itself. So this reminds me of something that uh, Steve Lawson once said. Uh, the stone blocking Jesus' tomb needed to be rolled away, not to let Jesus out, but to let us in. And what he means by that is uh, we are being invited to enter into this, this doctrine rationally, historically, to investigate it. It's not necessary for Jesus. It's necessary for us. For us to look inside, peer inside the empty tomb, and... Follow the evidence where it leads, because that, that changes everything. Right? Ask your questions, raise your doubts, uh, investigate away, uh, but, but be honest with yourself and, and let the data take you where, where it leads. Um, keep seeking, keep asking, uh, keep knocking. And, and if, you're, if you are a Christian and you believe this, uh, know that you have nothing to fear from questions, because history is on your side. You have nothing to fear from questions. Welcome the questions. Read uh, the, the skeptics. Um, engage with uh, the questioners. 
Now, if you're uh, at this point, you know, skeptical of all of this, and you're like, I don't buy any of it. I- I'm glad you're here. And my hope, my first hope will be this, that at the least, at this point, maybe you see, um, maybe you don't have to be insane <laughs> to believe uh, that Jesus resurrected from the dead, that uh, maybe you can be rational and believe this, and you can actually befriend people who believe this. Uh, that would be my first hope. And the other hope would be for you to continue uh, seeking this out. And we have our questioning Christianity group that's going to be meeting later this week. And that's a that's a place where you can also bring more questions and have more dialogues about this. So I would welcome you to join us there as well. All right, let's move on to the second point. We looked at the what. Now let's look at the so what. Um, the practical point. Right? Let's say it is rational. Okay, well, why does it matter to me? What practical difference does it make for me? Now, um, that question is, I mean, to answer that question, you can actually have a whole whole sermon series because it opens up everything else if jesus is alive all of his promises are true if he's alive all of scripture is true both the old testament and the new um, and it's all about him the the fact that he will return and bring his kingdom down to earth is true i mean these are all life-changing truth but here's what paul emphasizes in our passage today and that's what i want to hone in on Uh, verse 19 he says if in christ we have hope in this life only Uh, We are of all people most to be pitied. The thing that he focuses on here is hope. Hope. Uh, It's as if he's saying uh, believing in the resurrection is a good idea, not because it's rational per se, although you can argue that it is, but more importantly because it is ultimately, for those who believe it, a source of hope. Hope. It's ultimately hopeful. That's why this matters. Not ultimately because it's rational ultimately because it's hopeful. Uh, if you think about it, what, what is it that practically moves us in life and causes us to make everyday decisions and choices? Uh, it's really not what we find most rational, but what we might uh, find most hopeful. Uh, I mean, I know that the rational thing to do is to eat uh, two slices of the pizza that's in front of me, not six that's irrational, right, given my uh, dietary plans. But what do I do? I do the irrational thing. Uh, knowing that it's rational for me to stick to two slices don't always compel me to act on what is rational. Uh, that's not what drives us, is it? Right, it's not rational for me to binge watch a show till two end, but we do it anyway, right? What is it that really drives us? It's hope. The choices we make are made because we hope those choices will bring us a greater amount of success or happiness, whatever it is we're pursuing. Hope is what drives us. So here's why Paul hones in on the, the hope factor, because we're driven by hope. Um, so let me close with this, these two points, two ways the, the resurrection of Jesus gives us hope. Uh, first, the resurrection of Jesus gives us hope because it proves that Jesus really can cancel our debt of sin. Uh, Paul says in verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, you are still in your sins. Right? Because if, if all that talk about him being uh, resurrected from the dead is false, all that talk about forgiving your sins is false. If he did not rise from the dead, you are still in your sins. Uh, but if he did rise from the dead as he promised, then as surely as he is alive, you are forgiven. Uh, as surely as that tomb is empty, uh, 
so is your, your ledger. Your verdict is innocent. You don't belong to sin, now you belong to him. And because the wages of sin is death, and Jesus defeated death, you can trust his promise of giving you eternal life. He died, and yet he lives. And so even though you will die, you can believe. You will live. Uh, if you believe in the resurrection of Jesus, you believe that the wages of sin have been paid, then you have hope uh, in, your, in your deliverance from sin and death. That's hope. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then you know this is all wishful. Freud is right. This is all wishful thinking, right? We, we, we like to think we'll be forgiven. We like to think somehow we will not be held accountable in the afterlife. Um, but if Jesus is still in the grave, it's all wishful thinking. It's wish fulfillment. But if he rose from the dead, then as surely as he is alive, as sure, that, that's how surely we'll be forgiven. Um, that's hope. That's the first hope. Here's a second one. The resurrection of Jesus gives us hope because it empowers us to live a meaningful life even in the face of suffering even in the face of terrible uh, suffering. There was, at that point, no rhyme or reason to Jesus' crucifixion, his terrible suffering. Why did this innocent man have to be so utterly broken and poured out on the cross? Uh, The disciples at the time had no idea that somehow through this, even this horrifying suffering, God can bring about something ultimately good. That even though God felt so uh, silent, he wasn't absent. That's how they felt from, from Friday to Sunday. On Friday, they, on Good Friday of Holy Week, they, the thing that they loved the most and cherished the most died. And on Saturday, God is on complete silent mode. What is God doing? He's preparing them for Easter, for Sunday. Uh, There are days in our lives when we feel like uh, it's Friday of Holy Week. The, The thing that I cherish most has died. And, and there are days in our lives when, when it feels like Saturday of Holy Week. God is silent. He is not speaking. What is he, he doing? Well, Easter says um, he's preparing you for Resurrection Sunday. So don't lose hope. Even in the, in the face of uh, inexplicable suffering, uh, remember the cross and the resurrection of the one who hung on the cross. God uh, shows his people through the resurrection that they are not defined by the wounds they suffer on this side of heaven, just as Jesus is not defined by his crucifixion, but by his resurrection. Resurrection as well. You are not defined by uh, your wounds on this side of heaven, but by the wounds that your Savior still carries for you, on, even on the other side of heaven. And if he rose from the dead, his absolute lowest, he can raise you up from your lowest, whatever that might be. That's hope. That's hope. And this is the message of Christianity. Not that if you uh, believe in Jesus, 
you will get health, wealth, and prosperity. That's not the message of Christianity. The message of Christianity is even if you lose all of your health, all of your wealth, all of your prosperity, even if life just feels like Holy Friday and Saturday, if you have Jesus, his resurrection hope, you have hope of redemption. So let's make it our life's top priority to know this hope. What will be the point of chasing after more health, more wealth, more prosperity when they will eventually be lost? And none of these things will give you the answer to that question you have to answer at the end. What hope do I have in the face of death? What hope do you have in the face of death? Christ alone. Christ alone. What a foretaste of deliverance. How unwavering our hope. Christ in power, resurrected, as we will be when he comes. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, uh, it's, it's an incredible thing to realize what we're here remembering and celebrating and investigating. A man came back from the dead, and he lives today. Uh, what can be more important than that? Lord, uh, help us to make this our everything. And Lord, may we then uh, go forth from here and live according to this truth, this reality of Jesus' resurrection and the fact that he lives today. Let that be our reason for living and our reason for hoping. And for those of us who may be still uh, seeking, uh, asking, uh, doubting, uh, Lord, I ask that uh, you encourage them to continue on that journey, uh, to seek, to ask, to knock until they find, until they receive, until the door is open to them. Uh, Lord, be, be merciful and gracious to all of us and reveal more of yourself to us throughout this uh, Easter Sunday. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.